two years ago, my wife and I crossed a, a threshold. We got to the point in our lives where we had been together longer than we were alone or apart from one another. It was kind of a cool slash weird place to be. If you had seen us dating early on, you would never have guessed that. Uh, our early dating relationship got off to a fairly rocky start. My friends, at, frankly, put 10 to 1 odds that she would even ever say yes to me when I asked her out on a date. And that was only out of pity, 10 to 1. The fact that she would go out with me twice was ridiculously long odds. Um, our first date, my ex-girlfriend was our waitress. That was a bit odd. And no, I didn't take Lynn to the restaurant that my ex-girlfriend worked at. It was a banquet at, at, on campus. Uh, the dean of students actually warned my wife not to date me. So it was, the fact that we made it at all is a, uh, a miracle. But I do remember the night that it almost all came unraveled. We had been dating a, a few months, and Houghton's campus was far different than this behemoth campus here. You had to drive a long way to get to a restaurant, let alone a nice restaurant. So a few months in, we hadn't really gone out on a nice date yet. So I thought, you know, it's time to change that. So we got kind of dressed up, and I drove to a town 45 minutes away called Belmont. And we drove to this fancy, nice restaurant in my little S10 pickup truck that was spray-painted like a Tonka truck. Uh, when Lynn's parents saw her come home one day in that truck, she, they knew. They just knew that she must love me to be riding around in this Tonka pickup truck. But we went to this nice restaurant. We had our meal, and after the meal, the waitress says, do you want dessert? And I said, of course. And I ordered a cheesecake. And my wife said, no, I'll just have some of yours. That almost ended the whole thing right there, because I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I do remember it 25 years later, because those little bits haven't stopped. I, I, I know I was taught by my mom to share, but there's some things I really don't like sharing. My cheesecake is one of them. Ask my boys. I'll fight them for it. But you know what? There's some things where sharing actually enhances the experience, right? Cheesecake is a limited commodity. I don't like sharing it because that means I have less. But a sunset's not like that. I, I rather enjoy sharing the sunset with my wife or a nice long walk on a cool autumn day not these 95-degree days. There's something about sharing that experience that adds to the blessing of it, adds to the enjoyment of it, right? This week, we're wrapping up this series on deck, looking at the Great Commission and the call that we have to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Part of the experience of the gospel of the fullness of the blessing of the gospel comes, frankly, in sharing it, in sharing it with others. Sharing the gospel with the nations is part of the blessing of the gospel. 
Can I say that again? Sharing the gospel with the nations is part of the blessing of the gospel. Now, I know the way we read through the the gospels, the way we preach through the gospels sometimes, makes it seem like the Great Commission, this passage that was just read, is kind of an add-on at the end. It's just kind of Jesus' final instructions before he leaves. But it's not. It's been at the heart of Jesus' mission from the beginning. It's been at the heart of God's mission since sin and chaos and enmity and division entered the world. And it's been a part of Matthew's gospel if we've had eyes to see it all along. God's mission from the time sin entered the world included all the nations, and Matthew has been hinting at that all along. The Great Commission does bring Matthew's gospel to a close, but Matthew's gospel has been hinting at the inclusion of all peoples, of all nations, since almost literally his first words. The first words that Matthew pens that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now maybe when we read that, we think that Matthew's just trying to establish Jesus as an Israelite who comes from the royal line of David, and he is doing that, but he's doing so much more than that. He's placing Jesus as part and kind of the capstone of what God was doing for millennium through Abraham. What was that? Rewind with me all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. And God warns Adam and Eve, because you've done this, things are going to go horrifically wrong. Even in the family unit, things are going to go poorly now. Sin will infect and affect all aspects of life and of the world. The next chapter, Genesis 4, you have your first murder, and that's just not any old murder. Fratricide. Cain kills his brother Abel. Move the next chapter, and you begin to see how wicked the world had become. God says at one point, I wish I had never created these people. They're so wicked. And he determines to wipe the wickedness off the face of the earth in a great flood. But he saves Noah and his family. Genesis 5 through 9 are a record of Noah and his family. And what you see is though, that though God destroyed the wickedness, it still persists even in Noah and his family. Noah wasn't a cure for sin. In Genesis 10, you get a long genealogy. People refer to Genesis 10 as the table of nations, where Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all their lineage is laid out. And it's the record of their families, their clans, and the nations that they become. Genesis 11 
in the interesting story of the Tower of Babel. And you see that these, these families, these clans, how sin is impacting them. They determine in their pride and their arrogance to make a great name for themselves and to build this tower out of brick and mortar that will reach to the heavens. And God says, this isn't good. Man's refusing to scatter and fill the earth like I told him to do. And so he confuses language as a judgment on their sin. Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 are all about the impact of sin and what it's done to the world and what it's done to people and their relationships. And Genesis 12 is God's plan to fix it. In Genesis 12, God singles out a man, Abram, to be in a special relationship with. But it's not just for Abram or later Abraham's sake. It's for the sake of the whole world. In Genesis 12, Abraham is blessed. And part of the blessing is that he will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All those families that have been listed in Genesis 10 and thrown into confusion in Genesis 11, they're going to be blessed through Abram. All the families of the earth. That promise is reiterated in Genesis chapter 18 and again in Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a mighty nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When Matthew goes back and picks up on the story of Abraham and places Jesus squarely in that story, he's saying, this is how that promise is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is the one who brings the blessing to the nations. What you see throughout the Genesis story and throughout the rest of the Bible and through our story is that sin continues to divide, to break relationship, to drive wedges between peoples and families and clans and nations. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus, unites brings together, does away with the hostilities, eliminates the dividing walls, tears them down. You see that from the very first words Matthew writes, and you see it all throughout his gospel. There's all these kind of preparatory hints for the Great Commission. In Matthew 2, you get the story of the Magi. Matthew's the only one who records that story about these Wise men, these kind of mysterious figures who, who come from the east and are among the first worshipers of Jesus the Christ. In Matthew 8, you get the great story of the centurion whose servant was sick and comes to Jesus and said, My servant is paralyzed and suffering. Will you please heal him? And Jesus asked, Do you want me to come to your house to heal him? He says, No, you don't even have to do that. I'm someone under authority, and I know that you have authority. 
All you have to do is give the command, and he'll be healed. And Jesus marvels at his faith, and he, he says, you know what? Many who aren't a part of the household of Israel, many from the east and from the west, are going to come and eat at Abraham's table. Preparing us to hear this great commission to take the gospel to the nations. And Jesus himself, as he's speaking about what's going to happen at the end of the age, says the gospel is going to be preached to the entire world. And only then will the end come. There's all these anticipatory things throughout, throughout Matthew's gospel, from his first words drawing on Abraham and placing Jesus in the story, to these repeated stories of people from other nations coming in and experience the blessing of Jesus. And Matthew ends his story with this commission, this great commission to take the gospel to the nations. I think these words that were read by Ida Joe, that Matthew penned, that Jesus spoke, ought to stir in us a sense of, of duty, of responsibility. For the task isn't finished yet. The gospel hasn't been preached to the ends of the earth. There are still people who have not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is our responsibility to take that commission seriously. But I wish we could hear also in those words a call to come and delight in sharing the good news. It's a duty, but it's also part of the blessing of the gospel. Jesus' words here are not just final instructions. They're in essence a benediction, a pronouncement of a blessing. Just like Abraham was blessed, and part of the blessing was that he would be a blessing, so we who have been blessed by the gospel, part of our blessing that Jesus pronounces over us, yes, that he'll be with us to the end of the age, but that we have part of the privilege of sharing the gospel with others. The gospel is not a limited commodity that somehow we have less of when we share it. Part of the joy of the gospel is that we get to share it. Obviously, this passage is important. It's not the only passage that's important, but it's important for our understanding of missions, global missions. Philip Jenkins, in an incredibly important book, The Next Christendom, highlights the fact that in the last few decades, the Western church's commitment to missions has waned dramatically. At just the point when the world needs it the most, the Western church is abandoning the global south, abandoning its call to share the gospel with the nations. I know here at ECC, we love missions. We take it seriously. We're committed to it. Our budget reflects it. I pray that that doesn't change 
Uh, I pray that that doesn't wane as we see it waning in so many churches across the nation, across the West. I pray that we would continue to see it as an incredible privilege to share the gospel. And at the same time, I hope that when we say sharing the gospel with the nations, we understand that it means sharing it with our nation too. Uh, I think for a very long time, it's been easy to kind of deceive ourselves and think that we live in a, a Christian nation that doesn't need the gospel because it already has the gospel. I mean, it's easy to deceive ourselves in that because there's a church on virtually every corner, right? And here in the middle of the country, in those flyover states, part of the, you know, at least the edge of the, the Bible Belt, it's easy to think that, well, everyone's a Christian. We don't need the gospel. I think right here in the middle of the nation is maybe the hardest mission field in the nation. I haven't lived on the West Coast. I've lived on the East Coast, and it was easy on the East Coast. You kind of knew where people stood. Here there's this underlying assumption that we're all Christians. And to get behind that, to get under that, can be incredibly challenging. If we're called to share the gospel with the nations, if we're privileged to share the gospel with the nations, that means our nation too. Right here in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. So how are we doing on that? I commend ECC tremendously for our missions efforts across the globe. But how are we doing right here? More pointedly, how are you doing right here? How are you carrying this great commission where you live? Do you accept the duty and the privilege of sharing the gospel with your nation? The blessing of the Great Commission is that we get to share the gospel. We don't have to share the gospel, we do. But we get to share the gospel. Something else I see in this text, if that didn't make you uncomfortable, this is sure to. Sharing the church. Sharing the church is the means for accomplishing this mission and part of the blessing of sharing the gospel. Sharing the church. It's clear from this passage, right, that the gospel is meant to go out. I think it's equally clear that the nations are supposed to come in. The gospel goes out and we make disciples and disciples find their home in the church. The church from its inception was to be a multinational, multi-ethnic body of Christ as part of the blessing of the church. I'm going to say something that I bet a lot of you are going to want to talk to me after the service about. We're called to make disciples. It is impossible to make 
disciples apart from the ministries of the church. Impossible. To make disciples, we need to be welcoming people into the church. People of every language, of every race, of every ethnic background, of every country of origin. Welcoming them not just as guests, but as full participants in the body of Christ. God's people have always been a multiracial, multi-ethnic lot. Matthew's been hinting at that all along also. You go back to Matthew chapter 1 and just look at the genealogies. There's some things about Matthew's genealogies that are kind of odd, honestly. What's odd? He includes women. That really never happened in ancient genealogies. But he doesn't just include women. He includes foreign women. He includes Tamar and Rahab. Canaanites who are part of Jesus' lineage. He includes Ruth, a Moabitess. He includes Bathsheba, who was a Hittite or at least married to a Hittite. And yet they're a part of the people of God. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. As the people of God were leaving Egypt in the grand exodus, we're told that a a mixed multitude that included Jews, that included Egyptians, that probably included Cushites and Midianites and people from all different nations, a mixed multitude went out with Israel and became a part of the nation of Israel. Moses himself was married to foreign women, a Midianite, a Cushite. Cush is the region of Africa below Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia. Why am I, you might want to say, harping on this multi-ethnic dimension of the church? Because I've learned in my own life not to take things for granted. I've seen in my own life that I've battled with sins and then overcome them and thought they were done. Only to see them rear their ugly head in my life again. Maybe a decade or two down the road. That's true of the church too. It's true of the church too. Battles that I would have thought were fought and won reemerge. And so we have to revisit truths from the Bible that maybe we thought we could take for granted, but we can't. And the truth is that the beauty of the church and the beauty of the gospel are obscured or marred by sins of racism, by more subtle attitudes of ethnocentrism or xenophobia or nationalism. 
beauty of the church is marred by those things. The beauty of the gospel is clouded by those things. The church is meant to be the embodiment of the kingdom of God. You want to see the most beautiful picture in my mind of what the church should be? Turn to Revelation chapter 7, please. If you have a Bible, great. If not, look at it later. Revelation chapter 7 is a picture of saints worshiping around the throne. Saints from every tribe, every nation, every clan, every family, every language worshiping around the throne. That is God's intention. The gospel is for all peoples and all nations. And because that is true, the church must be a place for all peoples and all nations and all races. We're living at a weird time. A weird time. Tensions in our nation are higher than I can ever remember. Racial tensions, political tensions. Now, granted, I did not live through the 60s or the 70s, right? But we're incredibly divided. We're divided on things like immigration. I'm not stepping into the politics. I don't care what your politics, well, I do care, but I'm not going to address what your politics are. What I know for a certainty is that someone walks through the doors of our church or the church, immigrant, natural born, doesn't matter. Legal, illegal, doesn't matter. African, African American, doesn't matter. Asian, Asian American, Latino, Hispanic, white, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we look at one another and see brothers and sisters in Christ Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, full participants in the kingdom of God, citizens together of the heavenly kingdom. That is the beauty of the church, the beauty of the gospel, and we get to participate in that. Well, what can we do? What can we do better? We can continue to support ministries that we've supported for decades here at the church. We can continue to support people who are reaching out to the international community. Support them, pray for them, encourage them, ask what you can do to help. But I'm less concerned right now about the programs. And I'm more concerned with our hearts. Do we want the church to be what the church is called to be? Do we desire that? I feel like I need to walk a fine line here and not play the role of the Holy Spirit. He does the convicting work. 
I'll just ask questions. Do we want it? Do we want our church to be the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-national reflection of the kingdom of God that I believe it's called to be? How are you making it possible? Let me just encourage you to make this place, not just for the next few weeks when we're flooded with new people coming into the church, but every week, make this place an inviting place, a welcoming place, especially for those who may feel a little bit of fear and trepidation coming into our building. Maybe they feel that fear and trepidation because of the name that's on the sign and their assumptions about what that name means. Maybe they feel that because of their accent or their country of origin or whatever. Be welcoming. Not just welcoming them and saying nice words as they walk in the door, but pulling them into the full life and experience of our church, into your group, into your ACG, into your home. These things don't just happen. They take intentionality. They take commitment. They take belief that the church is meant to be something more than it is and that the gospel can do it. Sharing the church is, I think, a little bit more like sharing the cheesecake rather than sharing the sunset. Just want to be honest. It requires a little bit of sacrifice. If we truly share the church like we're called to, it might mean things aren't done like they've always been done. They're not done the way that we're used to them being done. Maybe we're stretched with new songs, with a new look. Well, I can tell you for sure, sacrificing my little bit of cheesecake was worth sharing life with my wife. And I can promise you, giving up the little bit of control that you might have to give up on the reins of our church will certainly be worth experiencing the blessing of the church as it's called and meant to be. As it's called and meant to be. A reflection of the final kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, your, your son Jesus, he makes demands of our life. We pray that you would you'd give us the grace to accept these demands as not something that is meant to be onerous, but as part of the blessing of living with you and for you. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that your spirit would do his work in each one of us so that your heart for the nations and for the peoples would be ours. And in all things, we give you glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.